Are you in college or know someone who is? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2025. Live steps from the Colosseum with like-minded students and explore the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. Don't miss this life-changing opportunity. Limited spots are available. For more information, go to thomisticinstitute.org slash Rome. That's thomisticinstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you, Josephine, for that wonderful introduction, and it's a pleasure to be here. I'm not sure I would call myself a prominent Christian intellectual. I am Christian, um, but I am really an astronomer, and I am trying desperately to learn as much as I can about St. Thomas and Thomistic philosophy and theology as I can before I'm too old to, to absorb it. And uh, it's not easy. You know, I started out uh, rather late in my life. In fact, I'm a convert to Catholicism. I converted at the age of 46, 47, and I'm uh, now 64. So uh, I had a lot of catching up to do. Uh, and uh, it's been a wonderful journey, uh, most of which is really thanks to the Thomistic Institute, which is a wonderful institution, really guided by the Holy Spirit with a lot of wonderful programs. So I'm very glad you have a chapter here. So I want to talk to you tonight about the search for life beyond Earth. I'm going to give you the, a little bit of the science and then talk a little bit about whether there are implications for religious faith. Because I'm a Catholic and because this is the Thomistic Institute, I'm going to focus on the implications for the Catholic faith. There may be people in the room who are of other faiths or no faith at all, so you can uh, try to think about whether any of these ideas generalize to uh, your own personal spiritual background. So I'm going to start with uh, the search for microbial life in our own solar system. Then I'm going to go on to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, what used to be called little green men, but none of those are politically correct anymore, uh, so we just call them extraterrestrial intelligences. And then I'm going to go on and talk about the implications for faith. I'm actually going to do a little bit of that between parts one and two, which I think is the easy part. Uh, the implications if microbial life is discovered in the solar system, what are the implications for uh, the Catholic faith? So I'm a planetary scientist, and my view of the question of whether there is life elsewhere in the universe is, number one, we have no idea. We know of only one place where life occurs, and that is life on Earth. All life, all life, uh, has a single common set of biochemical principles and is self-evidently derived from a single origin. We know of no other life forms elsewhere. We know of no evidence for life elsewhere. Uh, what is known is that there are places in our solar system where life 
potentially could exist today, at least microbial life, very tiny life, single cell life. One of those places I'm not going to talk about for lack of time, and that is Mars. I'm waiting for the disappointed faces, because uh, everyone thinks of Mars when you think of the possibility of life. Mars is a really interesting place to go look for evidence of past life, um, but the surface of Mars today is not uh, suitable for life as we know it. Uh, and in fact, it's blasted by ultraviolet light, uh, which essentially uh, oxidizes the soil to the point where uh, it's, uh, some of the chemicals in the soil uh, are extremely uh, good uh, sterilizing agents. But there could have been life in the past, and there um, is a rover now collecting samples called the Perseverance rover that will hopefully be brought back to the Earth from a region where at one time, early in the history of Mars, there was liquid water because it's an area where there's a, a river delta that is all dried up. There's no water there now, but it very evidently was a river delta, and that's where this rover is sampling. So I want to talk about places where life might exist today, and the three best places are moons in the outer solar system, bodies that are orbiting the giant planets. There are three of them. I'm going to talk about two in this lecture. Uh, the first is Europa, Jupiter's moon Europa, which uh, is probably the most promising home for an alien ecology because it has a liquid water ocean, which is vast in volume. It could be double the volume of the Earth's ocean. But we still don't know whether that ocean contains the ingredients for life or whether life is there. And there are missions uh, that are uh, being planned or conceived of to go there. I'll talk about Europa Clipper. Enceladus is a really tiny moon. It's a moon of Saturn. Uh, we don't think of tiny moons as being good places to look for life because if they're small, they cool off quickly. So we expect any sort of liquid to freeze very early in their history. Enceladus has an, a liquid water ocean. It's kind of a surprise. Um, I'll say a little bit about where that might come from. It turns out not only does it have a liquid water ocean, but if you were to walk up and look at this very, very carefully, you would see a little goatee on the bottom of this moon. And that is a plume of gas and ice and dust pouring out of the south pole of Enceladus, uh, coming very likely from the ocean. And that plume of material was sampled by spacecraft uh, up to 2017, from 2013 to 2000, well, even 2005 to 2017. Uh, and using a technique called mass spectrometry, um, it was possible to determine what materials are present in that ocean. I'll talk about that. Titan is a great, interesting place. Um, it's a big moon, bigger than the planet Mercury. Uh, it's very cold. It probably has a liquid water ocean very deep down in its interior, but it actually has surface lakes and seas of methane. And one of the interesting questions there is, could a form of life begin in liquid methane? It's a great question. I'm not going to talk about it here for want of time. All right, so let me talk about Jupiter's moon Europa. Uh, it's about the size of the Earth's moon. When you look at it, you see that the surface is water ice. But if you measure the density of Europa, which was done by taking the mass of Europa, measured by how 
the, the moon deflects the trajectory of spacecraft flying by it. Uh, divide that by the volume. We know the size of it. You come up with uh, a, a value of three uh, grams per cubic centimeter, where liquid water is uh, one gram per cubic centimeter. So um, three grams per cubic centimeter is not the density of water ice. You would expect it to be one. So most of this moon is actually rock, the way the Earth's moon is. And the amount of ice that you can allow on this moon, which has a diameter of about 3,000 kilometers, or about 2,000 miles, is a layer that's about 200 kilometers thick, or maybe 120 miles thick. So the, the water is a kind of a coating surrounding this uh, silicate body that is very close in size to the Earth's moon. It has a very strange geology. If you look at this surface, you see that it's covered with fractures. You can see that in the upper right. And if you look at these close up, as in this image from the Galileo spacecraft, which uh, orbited Jupiter in uh, the 1990s, you see all of these interesting fracture patterns, which suggests that the crust has been broken apart, turned around, twisted, really suggestive that underneath uh, is a liquid water layer on which the ice can slide around. It turns out that Europa does have a liquid water layer, and that liquid water layer uh, corresponds to a volume that is, as I said, as much as twice that of the Earth's oceans. So uh, this is a kind of a fun diagram by a group at the University of Puerto Rico that does very nice diagrams about planets. So if you take the Earth, the moon is here, at the right scale to the Earth. Europa is the right scale as well to the Moon. You take the amount of water in all the Earth's oceans and you bundle it up into the form of a spherical drop. That's what it would be relative to the size of the Earth. You do the same thing for the ocean of Europa and you get a much bigger sphere of water. Okay? Now for the Moon, very little water, of course. So how do we actually know this? How do we know that underneath this ice covering and above this uh, mostly silicate body is a layer of liquid water. Well, amazingly, we know that from electromagnetism, which is a course um, that not many people like to take, but um, it's actually it's a great subject in physics. And um, it, this is somewhat related to the way that people look for uh, metal objects underneath uh, the sand at beaches or uh, places like that. <clears throat> so here's how this works. Jupiter, which is shown here, uh, rotates very rapidly, about 10 hours uh, for a day, okay? And it also happens to have a very powerful magnetic field. In fact, if you measure the intensity of Jupiter's magnetic field at its cloud tops, it's 20,000 times stronger than the Earth's magnetic field at our surface. Jupiter has, um, like the Earth, the um, magnetic field is kind of like a dipole, so the lines of force look like this. They're sort of shaped like what you would see with an iron bar magnet. If you take a bar magnet, put a piece of uh, thin glass on top of it and sprinkle iron filings on that, you would, they would organize into these kinds of shapes, which are the field lines. But like the Earth, the axis of the magnetic field of Jupiter is not aligned with the rotation axis. So if the rotation axis, the axis around which Jupiter rotates, is this right-hand forefinger, the magnetic field axis is displaced, like this. 
And so as Jupiter goes around, if you're looking at Jupiter in the plane of its rotation axis, you would see those lines of force bob up and down as in this animation. And there's something else in this animation that is not something we need to talk about, but Jupiter has um, a very powerful um, uh, radio emission called synchrotron radiation, which is tied to that magnetic field. And so those uh, red and uh, yellow areas are just intended to depict that. But anyway, um, if you are standing on Europa or the other Galilean moons of Jupiter, you are in the rotational plane of Jupiter. You're in the equatorial plane. That's where those satellites rotate. And if you look at Jupiter, what you see, because the magnetic axis is tilted, is that the magnetic lines of force bounce up and down. Now, because Jupiter spins much more rapidly than the orbit period of Europa, Europa takes a couple of days, a few days to go around Jupiter, um, the magnetic field is actually sweeping through Europa. It's sweeping through you. So you're not really moving through the magnetic field. It's zipping through you. And if you look at it, because of this up and down motion, that magnetic field is varying with time. The local manifestation of Jupiter's field is varying with time. Now, a fundamental law that came from Michael Faraday in the 1700s uh, is the law of induction. And the law of induction says that if you have a changing magnetic field and you move a conductor through that changing magnetic field, then there will be an induced magnetic field that will arise. And a little bit more detail is that the varying, the time varying magnetic field sets up electric currents in the conductor. And those electric currents then generate their own magnetic field. Uh, and uh, this occurs if you have an electric conductor. If you don't have an electric conductor, uh, like you have a dry piece of wood or a shoe or something, you don't get any effect like that at all. You have to have something that's electrically conducting. So the bottom line is that uh, the Galileo spacecraft, with a device designed to measure magnetic fields, flying by Europa multiple times, measured this strong induced magnetic field and it could only be there if there is a conductor inside. Now, there are two kinds of conductors you can imagine. One would be metal, because rock, meteorites, so forth, come with some amount of metal in them, so maybe there's a metal core. The problem with that is that would be right in the center of Europa, and the signature of the electric conductor was more what you would expect if it was close to the surface rather than right in the center. The other would be liquid water, and especially salty liquid water, which is very electrically conductive. So that is how it is known that Europa has a liquid water ocean. Now, that may sound very circumstantial. You know, If you were a lawyer, you might say that's circumstantial evidence. But there's very little in the way of other explanations for this induced magnetic field and Galileo measured it multiple times. So if it's circumstantial evidence, it's pretty strong circumstantial evidence. And I will now tell you about some more evidence that makes this even more plausible. So on the surface of Europa are terrains that are called chaos terrains. They're places where there are a lot of crisscrossing fractures 
And these very enigmatic features, like this one here, this is a feature that's about 40 miles top to bottom. It was actually imaged by the mission that I'm involved with, that's at Jupiter now, the Juno uh, mission. It was actually imaged on the night side in Jupiter shine by a low light camera that's designed to work when you're just getting light from Jupiter, kind of like you know, going out in the moonlight and taking pictures. Without going into all the details about this, the, the way this feature looks and the topography of it suggests that it is a kind of a salt dome that had liquid water underneath it. The, it was ice. The ice melted for some reason. When the ice melted to make liquid water, we all know that liquid water has a smaller volume per gram than ice does, right? Ice floats. So when the ice melted, the whole thing shrunk, and the surface collapsed into that void that was formed by the melting. There are other interesting enigmatic features, like these uh, dark features up here and these two dark features here, um, which are not holes in the ground. They're just dark features. Um, and so what could those things be? Well, neither the Galileo spacecraft nor the Juno spacecraft can tell us directly. But there are other ways to get at this. And one of those is by doing spectroscopy. A planetary spectroscopy is taking the light from an object and breaking it up into its component wavelengths and looking for characteristic dips and rises in the distribution of light as a function of wavelength, which is characteristic of the various materials that are on the surface. Those materials, you can determine from spectroscopy um, the atomic abundance or molecular abundance, depending on whether you're looking at stars or uh, planets, actually the first to really apply this technique to astronomical objects was a Jesuit priest, Father Secchi, who was director of the Vatican Observatory uh, in the mid-1800s. Uh, and um, fast forwarding to today, uh, using Hubble Space Telescope, Samantha Trumbo, who uh, was an undergrad at Cornell and then at the time she did this work, a graduate student at Caltech, and now is back at Cornell working for me as a postdoc, she was able to map with her thesis advisor um, the distribution of a material that had a very characteristic spectral signature, and that was a salt, sodium chloride, NaCl, on the surface. And that distribution of salt, where the more abundant salt is given by the darker colors, correlates super well with these chaos terrains, these areas of fractures and these enigmatic uh, pits and depressions. So that suggested that those are places where material from the ocean, which has to be salty to produce this magnetic signature, must be coming up to the surface. The ocean comes up, comes up through fractures, the water freezes out or evaporates, the salt is left and deposited, and it's somewhat damaged by radiation. Well, Samantha did the same thing this year with the James Webb Space Telescope, which is even better than Hubble, and uh, was able to map the distribution of carbon dioxide ice on the surface of Europa. And lo and behold, it correlates as well with these heavily fractured areas on Europa's surface. So this is, I would argue, better than circumstantial evidence that ocean material is coming up and being deposited on Europa's surface in 
the most fractured terrains, and those pits that you see up there have been interpreted by geologists perhaps as areas where material from the ocean is deposited and darkened by radiation. And so we have access to the ocean uh, through this material, which otherwise would really be impractical to get to because it's under a kilometer or so of ice. So the next step is to uh, launch a mission which is specifically designed to look during very close flybys with the spectrometer and other instruments at the surface of Europa to determine where ocean material is coming out, what material is coming out. We now know there are salts. We know there's carbon dioxide. Are there organic molecules coming out? Um, that is carbon and hydrogen compounds. So Europa Clipper is uh, a very elaborate and expensive mission. Um, this is actually um, a, a scene you can, if you Google on Europa Clipper Live Cam JPL, um, you'll get to it and you can click and see what's going on with the spacecraft assembly, which is really kind of cool. So um, here's the spacecraft. These are full-sized human beings here. Uh, this thing here is the attachment for the magnetometer, which is not attached yet. So that on the diagram is that on the actual image. And you can see that these, it's an enormous spacecraft with these solar panels all unfolded. So the idea is to do an assessment, a kind of a tomography of Europa from top to bottom. Uh, there are actually two mass spectrometers on here. I'll tell you what mass spectrometry is a little bit later. Designed to look for any material that might be coming out in a plume. Uh, there's a camera, there's a near-infrared instrument, which I'm involved in, called MISE. Uh, there's a um, long wavelength infrared instrument to detect hot spots in these chaos regions. There's a radar with the cute name Reason that's designed to try to probe all the way to the ocean. And then by carefully tracking Europa Clipper's trajectory, we can determine mass distribution inside of Europa and whether the ocean really is as extensive as we think it is. So that's the first step before anyone wants to go look for life, is to see if the ingredients for life are really there. We know there's water, we know there are salts, we know there's carbon in the form of carbon dioxide, but is there, are there organic molecules which are really the basic building blocks of life? So let me move on to the other objects, Saturn's moon Enceladus. So unlike Europa, Again, here's the Earth, here's the Moon, and here's poor little Enceladus, right? Really tiny. Um, you shouldn't feel sorry for it because actually um, it has this enormous plume of material coming out which was discovered by the Cassini mission in 2004. <clears throat> so this is an early image. This is the crescent of Enceladus illuminated by the Sun. Enceladus is in orbit around Saturn. Uh, it has a diameter of 500 kilometers or 300 miles. Uh, so this was what was first seen. And then in close-up, you can actually see that that plume of, in this case, the ice and the dust, because the gas is not visible to a camera, um, that the ice and the dust actually resolves into individual jets of material coming out from fractures. And if you look super close at Enceladus, which was really a challenge because Cassini flying past uh, Enceladus, you would get a lot of smear in the images. So this 
uh, was a very intricate design for this particular flyby, which was actually done by someone at Cornell, uh, Paul Helfenstein. Um, on a scale of 100 meters or so, you see these, these fractures with material that's sort of stuck on top here, presumably from the plume. And then um, if you look around the region of Enceladus, all that material goes into Saturn orbit, and it forms a ring called the E-ring. And here are the fractures um, out of which that material comes. So that's very fortunate. It means that one can sample uh, this material directly, which is what Cassini did. But where is that material coming from? Well, there's good evidence that it's coming from a, an ocean. And the evidence comes from a variety of different kinds of measurements that Cassini made. This is the Cassini spacecraft. Um, it was um, really a 30-year odyssey from its conception to the end of mission. I, I started, I, I was involved in Cassini beginning when I just started my, my academic career. But because we don't have much time, I'll just go through these uh, very, very briefly. Um, you can measure the mass distribution inside of Enceladus and the shape of it from imaging. And all of that requires that the um, exterior of Enceladus, which looks icy, it is water ice, have underneath it a liquid water layer. There has to be a slightly denser layer. The induced magnetic field trick doesn't work for Enceladus the way it did for Europa because the magnetic field of Saturn is very weak and it's really aligned with the rotation axis, so there's no variation there. But Enceladus itself seems to be rocking back and forth. Um, the crust, um, when you image it over a long period of time, uh, there's this libration or nodding motion, which actually our own moon does. We think of the moon as presenting the same face to us all the time. But if you actually look really carefully, it rocks back and forth by about seven degrees. And if you go to Wikipedia and look up libration and you play the little gif, it's kind of freaky because it shows the moon rocking back and forth and uh, it's a little bit disorienting. So how does that tell us there's an ocean? Well, the amplitude of that libration, the angle with which it goes back and forth, is much larger than what you expect if Enceladus were to be a single solid body being pulled by its parent planet, Saturn. It has to be that only the outer layer is sliding back and forth, and so it must be sliding back and forth on a frictionless uh, layer underneath, which would be the liquid water. This was worked out by Radwan Tajuddin, who was a, at the time a postdoc at Cornell, uh, and others. And then um, there are large ice grains coming from Enceladus that are salty, and uh, salt does not dissolve well in ice, and yet this is on the order of um, uh, several percent ice relative, uh, salt relative to the ice. So it must be that these started out as liquid water and were flash frozen. And then finally, the fractures on the surface are at a much higher temperature than the background. So all of that suggests that under the crust is an ocean. So how is the composition measured? The composition is measured by a technique called mass spectrometry. And mass spectrometry involves taking atoms or molecules, charging them by knocking off an electron so they become ions, and then usually forcing them through some sort of electric or magnetic field. So one approach called a quadrupole mass spectrometer 
involves uh, four uh, cylinders that are metal that are electrically charged uh, in a periodic way. And by varying the electric field in these um, metal cylinders, you can control the rate at which atoms, uh, ions, move uh, through the interior uh, defined by those tubes. And by varying that, you can uh, essentially, because uh, an atom of one mass will move at a different rate than an atom of another mass, a more massive atom will tend to move more slowly for a given electric field. An atom that's lighter in weight will move more quickly. So by manipulating this, you can scan across the mass spectrum and identify the composition of things. And the result of that is pretty remarkable. Um, there are salts. There are organic molecules. There are silica grains, all showing up in the mass spectrometry. And so the picture that we get of this interior is um, an ice crust with an ocean. And at the base of that ocean, where the rock is, this is sort of a better cutaway, are um, regions where the water and the rock are interacting with each other in what we would call on the Earth a hydrothermal system. Those are places where on the Earth it is thought that maybe life actually began. And the organic molecules are not just lightweight molecules like methane, but ones that are heavy in weight, more than 100 um, mass units, uh, many times the mass of carbon, as shown in this mass spectrum. So here's a place where you don't have to go drilling into the ocean to look for life. All you need to do is to detect the, the signs of life which would be looking for amino acids. You're this, uh, one of the members of the audience is analyzing amino acids here at Brown with a mass spectrometer. So the pattern of amino acids would tell you whether it's from something living or not. Uh, the pattern of fatty acids as well, which are in the membranes of our cells, um, and various other tests like that, which Cassini could not do but a number of us are trying um, to get NASA to do another mission to Enceladus with much better instrumentation, high-resolution mass spectrometry. And with high-resolution mass spectrometry, um, one could, in fact, distinguish between different amino acids. With the Cassini mass spectrometer, for example, two very simple molecules, nitrogen and carbon monoxide, which have the same unitary atomic mass, 28, could not be distinguished from each other. But with high-resolution mass spectrometry, because they actually vary from that integer mass by a little bit, you can easily split them up. And the mass spectrometer that can do that, called mass specs, is on the Europa Clipper. It will be launched in 2024, and we want to send it as well to Enceladus. And Kelly Miller at Southwest Research is in charge of that mass spectrometer. So I am very confident that in the next 20 or 30 years, we'll have a good chance of finding uh, out whether there is microbial life in the oceans of Enceladus and Europa. So what would be the theological implications of that? Well, both these objects are far enough from the Earth that unlike Mars, where rocks get exchanged by impact between the Earth and Mars, and so any um, extinct life on Mars potentially could have come from the Earth. These are really isolated bodies. If life is present there, it had an independent start from life on the Earth. And a separate origin of life elsewhere in the solar system, other than the Earth, 
would suggest that the origin of life is a physical process rather than a special creation. Now, is that something that challenges anything in our Catholic faith? I know there are some people who um, conceive of the idea that life coming from non-life by anything other than uh, an act of God um, seems, would seem to be challenging. But here we can really rely on uh, Thomistic philosophy and theology uh, and understand that the answer to this question is that it's both. It's both God and the natural physical processes operating under the physical laws of the universe that he created. Because in fact, uh, and this is a quote from Father Dominic Legg uh, from a conference at Harvard, as much of a quote as I could get, because I wrote it down while he was talking. God endows the cosmos with real causal powers. Those causal powers are secondary or instrumental causes. God is the primary cause, uh, or the first cause for everything, including the physical laws through which those secondary processes operate. So a crude analogy to this would be that if I draw the letter A on the board, the chalk is the instrumental cause of that letter A, because that's what produces the mark, but I'm the primary cause of that. And that's a gross oversimplification for the way that God would operate, but it's basically the same kind of principle. So if one says that life has formed in many places spontaneously, it doesn't eliminate the role of God. It simply um, emphasizes the fact that God operates as the principal cause through secondary or instrumental causes. But why then should there be multiple worlds with life? One can argue that um, having life elsewhere is, is redundant. We have life on the earth. Why should life be replicated elsewhere? On the other hand, one can say that it reflects the plenitude of God's creation, that um, he would not leave the universe uh, bereft of life where life could form, but would have life everywhere where life could form, on planets throughout the cosmos. Well, St. Thomas has an answer to this in a couple of places, in both the Summa and here in the Compendium Theologiae. And it's really a remarkable statement. He says here in the Compendium that the multiplicity and distinction existing among things were devised by the divine intellect and established in things so that the divine goodness might be represented by created things in various ways, and that different things might participate in the divine goodness in varying degree. All this was so that a certain beauty might shine forth from the very order existing among diverse things, a beauty which would direct the mind to the divine wisdom. So through diversity, you get order, which is a concept that has come back into modern physics today. In fact, a group of us who participated in some discussions at the Thomistic Institute this last uh, spring um, on the question of why physical systems seem to um, evolve toward greater complexity, greater functionality, um, that this comes out of potentially um, not the physical laws that we know, but maybe a missing physical law in which uh, diversity, having a large number of possible pathways and having a way of selecting among them in terms of functionality can lead to a greater degree of order or complexity. And we just published this in um, a journal, uh, Open Access uh, PNAS, uh, 
Well, it appeared yesterday. So, you know, St. Thomas thought this up first, and while the words are slightly different, I think the concept is the same. So this is, if we found life in many different places, we would expect that it would be a natural uh, consequence of this order that God has imposed on this very beautiful universe. In 1950, Enrico Fermi, a famous physicist, posed the question, where are extraterrestrial intelligences? If there really are aliens who have developed a technology, because the universe is older than the Earth, they should have visited the Earth. We should see them. And yet we don't see them. In fact, radio telescopes have been looking for evidence of extraterrestrial signals for 60 some odd years and have only seen natural signals. There are no uh, artificial radio signals that have been picked up. Now the galaxy is very large and uh, things have to travel at the speed of light, um, but still it's a rather puzzling, uh, puzzling feature of the cosmos that it's not teeming with radio signals coming from elsewhere. Um, one can kind of put together a, not really an equation, but a series of factors that uh, quantify how many communicable civilizations you would expect to have in the galaxy. This was first done by Frank Drake, who was an astronomer who spent part of his career at Cornell. And I'm not going to through, go through this in detail, but the number of communicable civilizations should depend on the number of stars born per year the fraction of stars that have Earth-sized planets, the number of those planets that are habitable, the fraction of those planets that develop life, the fraction of those that go on to develop intelligent life and then technological civilizations. Now, these two factors, the ones in blue, are known from astronomical observations. The number of planets that are habitable is something that's being discovered now by the James Webb Space Telescope but the rest of these numbers are a complete unknown. What is the fraction of planets that could support life that actually have life? We don't know the answer to that. Um, how often does intelligent life develop? Well, we have a little insight that this actually may be a fairly rare occurrence, and that comes from the history of our own Earth. If we look at the history not only of the Earth, but the whole universe, um, and we try to conceive what 13 or 14 billion years really means, it's a lot easier to think of it if we compress that time into the space of a year. So this is what you can call the cosmic calendar. It was first thought up by Carl Sagan. So the whole history of the universe runs from January 1st to December 31st. 13.7 billion years in 365 days. So the Big Bang occurs on January 1st. The first stars appear a week later. Uh, stars manufacture the elements that go into planets, the carbon, the oxygen, the silicon, the iron, and so forth, but it takes time for that to happen. On our cosmic calendar, it probably takes five months, almost halfway through the history of the universe. The sun and the earth form, I love this day because it's my sister's birthday, the sun and the earth form September 3rd. There's, that's a really good number for that that comes from um, clocks in the rocks, radioisotopic dating, and modeling the sun. The first cells appear in the geologic record two weeks later, very quickly. Life begins on Earth fast. But then you have to wait 
through all of October, all of November, into mid-December before complex animal life appears on the Earth. This is called by geologists the boring billions. What was going on during that time? Whatever was going on, it took up a chunk of the universe because this is almost three months out of the 12 months. And so it takes a while for complex animals to form. And of course, human beings show up basically a few minutes before midnight. This is a kind of a puzzling thing because in fact, if you think about how much time intelligent life, namely us, might have on the Earth in the future, it's actually not very long. And the reason for that is that our dear constant sun is not very constant. As our sun undergoes hydrogen fusion, which is how it shines, converting hydrogen to helium, the helium forms an ash. It causes the sun to get denser. That raises the temperature in the deep interior, and that accelerates the nuclear reaction rate. So the sun is getting brighter with time. Now, this is a little chart that's very old, but it shows the region for stars of different mass, the regions, the distances from those stars at which liquid water is stable. If you're too close to the star, it's too hot. If you're too far away, it's too cold. Let's just focus on the sun, which is here at um, this position, one solar mass. And we see that the inner boundary of what's called the habitable zone is at about Venus, and the outer is a little bit shortward of Mars. But that inner boundary is creeping outward with time. These are times in billions of years. Because the sun is getting hotter, that inner boundary has to go further and further out in order for liquid water to be stable. And the best modeling suggests that the Earth is now, we're at four and a half billion years, so we're about here. The Earth is here by six billion years, which is another one and a half billion years from now will be tickling the inner edge of the habitable zone. And maybe after that point, the Earth will no longer look like this, but as Revelation says, the sea is no more. Maybe it'll look like that, which is the surface of Venus, which is closer to the sun, same size as the Earth, no water, very hot. So that may be an answer to the question of why we haven't heard from anyone out there, because it takes most of the habitable lifetime, at least in the case of our planet, to develop intelligent life. And maybe, um, maybe we were precocious. Uh, maybe this happened quickly. Um, but nonetheless, um, it's certainly easier to make microbial life than intelligent life. But what if we do discover extraterrestrials? There are two very interesting books that tackle this question. One is by a Thomistic uh, theologian named Marie George, Christianity and Extraterrestrials. The other by um, another theologian, not a Thomist, particularly Paul Thickpin. And um, that's the more recent book. I recommend both. The one on the left takes the negative view that um, intelligent, self-aware extraterrestrials could pose a problem to the Catholic faith. And therefore, she concludes they're likely not there. And he takes a more optimistic view, that they are there and there is not an incompatibility. And in my last five minutes, I want to talk a little bit about, give you a flavor for some of these arguments. So first and foremost, um, Marie George has this long series of amusing quotes from science writers, typically astronomers, 
who make the argument that discovering extraterrestrial life will cause a problem for particularly Judeo-Christian beliefs. And this is a very typical <clears throat> kind of um, quote you'll find. This is from the astronomer Robert Jastrow. Advanced extraterrestrial life forms may have a form of monotheism superior to Judeo-Christian beliefs. Does this not create problems for the traditional Judeo-Christian view of the deity as being very much concerned with the affairs of the particular race of intelligent beings that exist on our planet. So this small paragraph contains no fewer than three unsupported assumptions, all of which are designed to tell you that extraterrestrial intelligence uh, runs counter to Judeo-Christian faith. It says there are advanced extraterrestrial life forms. We don't know if they're there. It says they may have a form of monotheism superior to Judeo-Christian belief. What does that mean? What is that kind of belief, all right? It's just a statement. Does this create problems uh, with the idea of the deity being concerned with us? Well, that assumes that the deity can't be concerned with more than one intelligent species at a time, which certainly is, um, uh, to quote Willigis Jaeger, the Benedictine monk, putting God into a box that uh, is very small. So um, you get a lot of this, but one has to take a more serious look at the possibilities. And so here's a roadmap of the spiritual status of extraterrestrials that comes from, um, I created this from Paul Thigpen's book. It's not a figure in the book, but it comes from that. So first of all, ETIs either do not exist or they do exist. Or if they don't exist, they may have once existed, which is the same sort of theological question as if they exist today. If they do exist, what is their spiritual state? What are they ordered to? They could be ordered only to natural happiness, where they're smart enough to be able to talk to, kind of like Mr. Ed the talking horse, but they have no mortal soul. That's a possibility. Um, we don't have that on the Earth, but it's not to say that couldn't be. Or ETIs, as we are, are ordered to eternal life with God. And then they are either unfallen, that is, nobody ate the equivalent of the apple, uh, in which case we're the only lost sheep that uh, Christ has had to come and rescue, or they're fallen. And here, if they're fallen, is the whole crux of the theological issues related to whether this creates any sort of problem for the Catholic faith. If they're fallen, did Christ come only to the earth but his um, salvific act was a salvific act for all fallen creatures throughout the galaxy, just happened to occur on the earth. Or were there multiple incarnations, or are there other ways of redemption? So because of my lack of time here, I'm only going to give you one of these options, and that is the multiple incarnations. And astonishingly, St. Thomas addresses this in the 1200s. He says, whatever the Father can do, the Son can do as well. But after the incarnation, the Father can still assume a human nature distinct from that which the Son assumed. Um, but he also goes on to say that the Son could assume multiple incarnations. Now, this sounds very problematic. And in fact, Marie George, in her book, argues that there are several reasons why, even though multiple incarnations are possible, they're improbable. She says an extraordinary event should be singular. Modalities of a second incarnation are problematic. But Thigpen has a different set of arguments. And he 
crafts them in the form of thinking about the incarnation of God in the right way. There's a kind of a Nestorian heresy that God joined himself to a person to become Jesus Christ. But that's not the right way to think about it. God unites to himself a human nature, and that is the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity in the form of Jesus Christ. And so he goes on to say that you could then, based on what St. Thomas says, imagine that the second person, the Son of God, can unite to himself the nature of one or more intelligent extraterrestrial races, that there's no limit to the number of natures that God can unite to himself. And that could occur in the same time or over a set of time because God is atemporal, God is eternal. It's interesting to read that book and look at these discussions, but the main point of it is that the Catholic faith is actually deep enough to be able to consider these possibilities and not so thin and fragile as some astronomers would think that the appearance of extraterrestrials would suddenly shatter our faith in some way. And I, I definitely recommend mostly Thick Pen's book. So here's my summary. Um, we know of no life that did not originate on the Earth. There are places in the solar system with liquid water oceans where microbial life might be present, um, probably not macroscopic life. While planets are as common as stars in the cosmos, radio searches for other civilizations have not found any artificial signals at all except for noise coming from the Earth. So maybe we're not alone, but we're pretty lonely. Multiple origins of life are not a problem for Catholicism. St. Thomas associates diversity and plenitude with order, which is an idea coming back into physics today. And sentient ETs do not challenge the faith, but merit reflection on us on the part of Catholics to understand how and why. And I want to close with one of those meditations, which I find very, very beautiful. And I will do it in such a way that I'm no more than two minutes late. Uh, this is C.S. Lewis uh, in an essay called Dogma in the Universe, in which he says, and I'll read it, the doctrine of the incarnation would conflict with what we know of this vast universe only if we knew that there were other rational species who had, like us, fallen and who needed redemption, but they had not been vouchsafed it. That's a sort of an archaic way of saying they had not, through grace, been given this opportunity for redemption. But he goes on to say, but we know none of these things. We know none of these things. It may be that the universe is full of life that needs no redemption. It may be full of life that has been redeemed. It may be full of things quite other than life that satisfy the divine wisdom in fashions one cannot conceive. We are in no position to draw up maps of God's psychology and prescribe limits to his interests. The doctrines that God is love and that he delights in us are positive doctrines, not limiting doctrines. That's crucial to our understanding of how we connect our universe to our faith. God is not less than this. What more he may be, we do not know. We know only that he must be more than we can conceive. If you want this in the Cliff Notes form, we have to approach this question with as much humility as we can possibly muster. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. 
Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.